Hello, and welcome to Boston Private Perspectives. I'm Jason Kane, Chief Wealth Strategist and Co-Head of the Center for Wealth Planning Excellence at Boston Private, an SVB company. Thank you for joining us today as we discuss building the right advisory team to help manage generational wealth. I'm excited by this topic we're going to cover today and the expert who has joined me. Hello, Tom. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you, Jason. Nice to be with you. You bet. Uh, Tom Rogerson is the president and CEO of GenLeg Consulting, a firm that helps families understand the pitfalls of creating a generational legacy and assist those families with implementing best practices to avoid those pitfalls. I've known Tom for quite some time. We've had the the, uh, opportunity to work on a number of different uh, family scenarios together, and it's going to be my pleasure to get to uh, sit down with you, Tom, and and dig into this, this topic of building teams around uh, wealthy families. Uh, First off, let me ask you a question. Uh, How often do you see integrated teams uh, of advisors uh, really working together uh, thoughtfully uh, in a collaborative method? Is that common? Is it uncommon uh, with the families that you work with? Oh, it's a great question. And it's very uncommon, uh, unfortunately. Uh, and I think there are many reasons for that. But one of the bigger reasons is that oftentimes when a advisor has a higher net worth family or client, it's a very important relationship to them. And they're often quite nervous of um, of losing that relationship. I'm speaking of those attorneys or accountants or insurance providers that are that are out there oftentimes or smaller RIAs that may not have uh, full capabilities and all. And they can end up being defensive, meaning that they are uncomfortable bringing in other people because it might make them look like they don't know everything that the client needs. And uh, and I find that to be very problematic. Uh, and that has historically been the case. Uh, unfortunately, I, I, my experiences, it continues to be the case to a large degree. And I would, I would absolutely concur. Uh, even within institutions, you'll find that, that uh, bringing in thought leaders uh, to help manage the complexities of, of larger client situations can be uh, daunting and challenging. That being said, um, I, I think what I found is the DNA of advisors who work with uh, more complex, larger families, uh, a big part of their DNA is this kind of realization that no one person can have all the answers. And I, I think uh, I, I use my experiences um, in uh, a, in a single family office and working with a single family office uh, that the role of of recognizing that and bringing together a multidisciplinary team to help advance um, advance the uh, causes of the family uh, really became part of what we did on a day to day basis and and particularly for families who. Um, aren't at that single family office level, that can be a challenge, uh, as you mentioned, with advisors and something uh, that certainly is important. When you, when you think about building an, an advisory team, who, who are the key, uh, key players in that? What does a family, a complex family uh, need? Who do they need wrapped around them? Well, they, that, interesting. There've been a number of studies on this as well over the years, but, um, and, and I think our, 
our findings with clients matches that the typical client thinks of their primary advisors as their whoever's working them with them on the uh, capital deployment aspect of things, their wealth manager and the like, uh, their tax mitigation experts, primarily in the estate planning area when they think big picture, long-term plan, but also in the income tax planning with their accountant. And those three, sometimes with an added insurance provider for some of the, uh, the uh, insurance work needed, I'm finding are usually who the client thinks of as their key advisors. And, um, and, and that's one thing. So there's a missing component of, of the a family legacy advisor in that mix. Because uh, many times these advisors, when the client asks a question, they go back to what I, I refer to as, they go back to mama, they go back to their education, their upbringing, their, what they're schooled in every day. And they answer from the perspective of a capital deployment person, a tax mitigation person, an insurance uh, you know, placement person, as opposed to, a, wait a minute, what's the goal of the family? What's the purpose of the family? And are we keeping that in front and center as we go forward in the plan? Um, um, not just the parents' perspective, but the overall family perspective. Um, and I've, I'm finding that many times as a most of the people that we work with, I'm saying 75% or so, are first-generation wealth creators. And oftentimes, the wealth creator is still working with some advisors in those, in those areas I just described that they started working with early on. And the only reason I mention that is sometimes these clients have grown past the ability of some of these advisors. However, they don't know how to change them because they're trusted people that they like and they, you know, they know. And, they, and that's really where I find the biggest opportunity is how do we bring in new people to join the team, not replace necessarily, but join the team and uh, not threaten these people, but um, help pull it together in a more coordinated fashion becomes more and more important as the wealth and the complexity goes up. You've hit two really core areas that, that uh, are part of how we approach working with clients. Uh, the first of which uh, you, just, you just mentioned is oftentimes uh, it's adding to uh, the advisory team, not subtracting from it. I, I think there's a great deal of, of benefit to having uh, a long-term advisor uh, that has history with the family, that understands uh, some of the, the nuances as they, uh, as the family accumulated their wealth and built that wealth, and understands uh, that that there are subtleties uh, that that only history and time uh, can weed out when you're working with a family. It's not that uh, I always tell um, advisors and, and the families we work with. It's not that we want to replace that. We want to be additive to that. We want to make sure that we have. Uh, advisors and, and um, folks working with the family that are accustomed to and used and working with uh, with those families uh, and similar type families to bring the ideas and thoughts and best practices that large complex families have. Um, and it's a delicate balancing act uh, in uh, getting the um, legacy advisors and the historic advisors to understand that we're not trying to replace them. We're just trying to be additive to them. That, that's a, a challenge in and of itself. And then the, the other thing you mentioned, I, um, uh, this, this legacy planning component. I tell every single one of the families that we work with um, that there are three core areas that successful families navigate uh, as they're building wealth. Uh, the first area you hit on is capital deployment. Uh, investments, uh, whether it's stocks, bonds, private investments, uh, you know, direct deals. Uh, there's a whole myriad of, 
of opportunities out there and, and families need uh, very good advice uh, on deploying capital. And that's certainly an area that families love to talk about. Uh, that's the first area uh, that we routinely um, we routinely see families interested in talking about. Uh, and then the second area uh, is that I call it tax mitigation, whether it's estate tax, income tax, asset protection. It's the preservation and protection of the asset base that's been, uh, been you know, developed out over time. And there are quite a few folks that are very, very good uh, at that. Uh, and it is certainly a necessary component as you, uh, as you build complexity, as you build wealth, is, is uh, having um, good folks and good advisors in and around uh, that aspect of, of uh, uh, family uh, wealth. And then the third component, I call it family governance and, and legacy planning with a primary focus on creating thoughtful stewards. As you build up wealth uh, and you get generational wealth, you can do the best uh, anybody could possibly do on, on deploying that capital and growing that capital. You could uh, have the best folks wrapped around you uh, for mitigating taxes, for preserving assets, protecting those assets. Uh, but if you don't, as a family, focus on preparing uh, the heirs of generational wealth for thoughtful stewardship, then what you've done in, in areas one and two is all for naught. And I think that's where uh, most families um, fail to recognize that they need to spend time, effort, and energy, and that's preparing um, preparing heirs to be thoughtful stewards. I know that's a big piece of what you do, Tom. So talk to me about how you um, how you bring that to the table with families and how you integrate it with the first and the second piece. Yes, um, you're right. I mean that. That's really the key. And I love the way you worded that, that, that those three steps, the capital deployment, the tax mitigation, and then the family governance, or as you refer to it, and or the legacy advisor. Um, and I think that family governance is the, the most accurate term for it. Um, be, it. Although when I say the word governance, but oftentimes, it, go ahead. You hit, you hit it on the, I think you were going right where I was going to suggest. People don't understand what that means when you say family government. <laughs> exactly. And, and so, and, and in reality, governance, they think of it, it meaning a constitution and some kind of a bylaws and a set of practices and Roger's rules, set of rules. In reality, Very governance- Very formal. They think of something formal. Exactly. Governance is the simplest thing you can imagine when you really break it down. It's just group decision-making. If you and I decided when we want to end this call, that's- a form of governance. Uh, it, it's just a matter of we as a family decide what we're going to have for dinner. That's governance. Mom decides, dad decides, we all vote. And so governance is group decision making. And the reason it's so critical in this process is one of the largest studies done uh, on why families fail. First of all, that they do fail at preserving family, let alone their wealth. Um, but the largest study done was done of over of now 3,500 families by Williams and Pressure going back decades now. And they found that most families were failing at preserving wealth and more importantly, family. But the biggest reason for failure was due to lack of group of trust around group decision making. Well, we just said governance is group decision making. And it wasn't they didn't love each other. It's just that they didn't have practice at making decisions together. And what we are finding, last thing I'll say about that is that we're finding that these first generation wealth creators, especially when they all of a sudden have a, a, a few shekels to rub together extra, 
they often use them lovingly and intentionally to allow their family members to have more independence. That's great, except that if I'm if I get too much independence, if I go to summer camp and I don't have to spend time with my my family this summer, and I go to private school and I don't have to spend time with my family this winter, and I go to you know and I go to another state to, for college and I go to another state to live in, I can I can in many ways have so much independence. I'm not making almost any decisions with my siblings and and my my parents. And so the wealth is often used in ways that allow so much independence. They don't make this, they never learn how to make decisions together because they never have any practice at it. And that means that high net worth families, um, you know, who oftentimes have assets that need the next generation to work together, haven't built the built the ability for the next generation to work together. And that's governance. And that's why we, we introduce very simple methods of making decisions together to get them in the practice of how to do it. So we've got an agreement uh, that this governance uh, function, particularly for families with generational wealth, becomes one of the most important uh, aspects of keeping it intact. Can I ask you a side note? Um, I've read studies that, that have suggested that the failure rate of moving generational wealth uh, between first, second, and third generation is anywhere between, uh, uh, I've seen studies as high as 60% of the wealth uh, is gone by uh, the start of that 30, third generation to as high as 95%. Talk to me a little bit about that, and then I'm going to ask you a follow-up question. What what uh, what are experts out there saying about that shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves? Uh, yes, and, and there's it's kind of a moving target, but I would say that the the original some of the original numbers showing 95% gone by the third generation were a little bit off, and I think the reason that some of it was originally off was they were focusing on do they still own the family business. And they have made. Mm-hmm. They may have sold the business, but bought something else. Like maybe they sold their blockbuster di- distributorship uh, empire, and they now have something new. And and that would have been a good idea, by the way, um, or they'd be yeah. out of business. So, um, but but the number is probably higher than the sixty percent number you were using at the low end, and uh, and I think the biggest. The biggest reason is that they're what I just said that they're using wealth to allow separation of family. The way we put it with the families that we work with is we'll tell families a strong business cannot hold a family together, but a strong family can hold the business together. And if it's not a business, let's say you have a, a trust that you want to benefit the whole family, a strong trust cannot hold a family together, but a, fa- a strong family can hold a trust together. Same with a foundation, same with a family office. So no matter what level of wealth you have, building a strong family is a good thing to do. It just becomes more critical for families of significant financial wealth. And I think one of the things I've noticed in my career, it becomes, uh, it becomes much more difficult because the, of a word you mentioned earlier, they rarely practice how to, um, how to have those conversations. They really rarely practice how to effectively govern. Uh, and and part of the, the reason I feel that, um, and uh, from my observations of doing this for 27 years, part of the reason uh, they don't practice is because they don't know how to practice. Talk to me a little bit about that. Yeah, it's interesting, too, because these these parents that are, especially those first-generation wealth creators, they're usually really good at team 
at playing on teams, building teams, maintaining teams. But what they thinking what they're thinking about there is their management team. And they're really good at building teams. In fact, oftentimes the teams they built will last a long time. They'll have a CFO for and a CEO, whatever, for 20 years in their business. And they'll know these people. They'll have transparency and communication. They'll be honest and all that. The same people that build those teams at work go home and they, as I said before, they use their wealth to allow separation, which is actually not building team. My own family went through this. My own family had a great fortune. My great-grandfather um, was president of a similar named company to Boston Private, uh, uh, an SVB company, but he was president of Boston Safe Deposit and Trust Company. Grew to be a large financial institution in Boston, but largest by any measure, by the way. And he started a foundation that right now has almost $2 billion in it based in Boston. and the, But the bulk of his wealth was designed to go down to the family. I'm his great-grandson, and it's gone in the family, not because of bad planning. One of his sons, one of my grandfather's brothers, was one of the top estate planning attorneys in the country, one of the founding members of a group of attorneys called ActTech, which you know of, but mm -hmm. many clients may not. Yep. But it's a very high-end group of estate planning attorneys. He was one of the founding members of it. He was, and his son was president of it for many years, one of my uncles. So um, there was tremendous planning capability in the family. And remember, they owned a wealth management organization, Boston Safe, and yet the family money's gone. It wasn't because of bad planning or investing. It was because we didn't pay attention to this notion of building knowledge of each other, working together. And, you know, those team players, when I mentioned you, were, you start off by saying, what's the team of advisors? Uh, and that's the that attorney, accountant, investment advisor, insurance per person, hopefully and a legacy advisor like my, my wife and I play. But um, there's also the family team. Is Are the parents building a team in the next generation of uh, children knowing how to work together? And if they really get that idea of building an effective team with their advisors and building effective team of their of their children and, and blended families as well, and you know, whatever their structure of family is, but building a team mentality in the next generation, um, they really are ahead of the game compared to almost every other client that we see out there that is focusing with their typical advisors on tax mitigation, the capital deployment, and isn't that the be, the, the be all and end all? Right. And I, I would venture to suggest, and again, it's based upon my experiences, I've not uh, done uh, you know, extensive research on it, but the families that I have worked with that have been successful in moving generational wealth from first and sec to second, second and third generation, uh, they uh, routinely practice, or as I always say, they spend time energy and resources on and around this family governance model. Uh, and that they tend to be, if we say 65 to 75% of families go shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves in three generations, they tend to be those families that do spend that time uh, on, um, on creating thoughtful stewards in the family governance side and, and elevating that third component to uh, just as important as uh, capital deployment and tax mitigation, they tend to be the families that have uh, a significantly higher likelihood of moving wealth through generations and avoiding that shirt sleeve to shirt sleeve um, uh, potential. Question and, for you. And knowing each how, other. Yeah, yeah exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Question. How do we build, how do we get the 
you know, the estate planner, how do we get the investment advisor, how do we get uh, the insurance advisor and the accountants to work thoughtfully together and integrate that third piece, which I would argue is it, it's pretty straightforward that that third piece is as important, if not uh, even more important. But how do we get those advisors uh, to work together uh, and bring in that governance component uh, when working with these larger, more complex families? Well, what we find is, is often the case to motivate people, a carrot and a stick is a, is a great combination. The carrot that I'm on, and I'm, I speak to a lot of advisors, as you know, I spoke at Heckerling last year on this topic, and I've spoken at, at many conferences um, around the country to advisors largely on trying to get them motivated towards working together in teaming environments. But the carrot for me is telling these advisors that if you get a family together with a legacy advisor, like, you know, as I said, like my wife and me or, or others, but if you get the family together with someone really articulating what can and what's what's possible and what and get the family involved in coming up with a, a shared vision and a shared idea of what they'd like the plan to look like. There's more planning work in every family I've ever worked with. There's more planning work that needs to be done by the advisors um, than was being done before. And there's more opportunity for long-term relationships because now those advisors are building relationship with the next generation in a family. They don't have to worry about losing the family when the parent dies. Um, so that's the carrot. The stick side is, yep. it, it didn't used to exist, but the stick side is um, there's now enough talk about the need and the importance of family governance. People like you that have had the experience and seen are starting to talk more and more to clients about the importance of this. There are articles being written. Um, and there's more and more, there's a body of work now that's starting to come out. So if a family goes to a family office uh, conference or just a wealth management conference, it's quite likely they will start to hear topics about family governance and advisors are recognizing we better have said something about this or we might lose our client. So there's a combination of carrot and stick that we're often focusing on to get those advisors on board. And what I, to your point, what I'm seeing now is some of the, the leading firms out there, both on the accounting side and the, and the um, uh, law firm side, and uh, one in particular that uh, Marvin Blum out of, out of Texas uh, that I'm sure you're, you're very familiar with and likely have worked uh, with before, is that he is having this legacy component be part of his talking points with families. Uh, it is becoming more and more important, and, and I think professionals are recognizing how important that is, uh, how important it is uh, to collaborate, uh, how important it is to make sure that you're addressing those three core areas. And, and um, let's not kid ourselves, there are many, many sub-areas below each of those three, uh, but you know, when we break it down, I think it's easiest to say these three are the, the, the key components uh, of um, of what helps make families, uh, what helps them succeed in moving uh, generational wealth from one to, to two to three to even a fourth generation. Uh, one of the things that I often found uh, in working with families is getting them to sit down uh, and talk about some of these um, very, uh, the softer uh, topics uh, around uh, preserving wealth, around passing uh, wealth, is a little bit com um, a little bit uncomfortable, and I used an analogy that I often used with my 
with my children through their sports careers is that how you get better at something is learning how to get comfortable being uncomfortable. Uh, and that's not to suggest that, that we're going to create, you know, uncomfortable settings, but when something is new and when you haven't practiced it, and I, I love that word because uh, we use it in so many other areas of our lives uh, and, and don't ever think of, oh, well, we should practice good, good governance. Um, but when you practice things, those, those issues, those concerns, those topics that become, that are, uh, that begin as uncomfortable the more you practice and the more comfortable you become uh, in addressing those, uh, uh, those issues and in, um, in dealing with those concerns and in just having that dialogue. And I'll share with you a family that, um, that I worked with, a, a little tidbit of story that uh, we were coming together for the very first time uh, as a family five adult children ranging in age from 21 to 32, mom and dad, uh, and mom was terrified. Uh, she was uh, the one that created the wealth uh, and had also inherited a significant amount of wealth. And she was terrified about having a dialogue and a discussion about um, how much wealth there was. And what we landed on uh, was that we would talk about a pool of capital, uh, you know, uh, a sizable pool of capital that was in a charitable vehicle that we would get the children involved with uh, making decisions with. But she didn't want to share the number. And in the first meeting that we had together, uh, what ended up happening is as she saw her children and, and her husband uh, begin to, to dialogue and to practice uh, kind of this collective decision making at, at the very end, we were going five miles an hour, not 95 miles an hour. She became much, much more comfortable throughout the uh, period of the three and a half hour meeting. Uh, and at the end of the meeting, she shared with the children how much um, how much there was. And, but before she did that, uh, which I found was very interesting, she asked them, how much do you think is in this account? And the numbers were, um, uh, the closest one was, uh, 500% off. Uh, but you could see the family as they began to have that dialogue to begin practicing how to make collective decisions, get much more comfortable in those baby steps uh, or, you know, going five miles an hour, uh, as we began that process of integrating family governance, uh, really was, uh, compelling, uh, to mom and dad, uh, as they began, uh, what will ultimately be a very long journey, but they began to your point, collective decision-making. So I know we're running up on time. Can you give me kind of, as we come to closure here, some, some best practices on, on integrating these teams uh, for, for complex families. What have, what have been kind of the top couple of things that you've seen that have worked for families and what are the pitfalls to avoid, uh, as you build, uh, build out teams? Um, well, there's, there's a sort of a line in the sand of, of what does work on one side and what doesn't work on the other side. And I'm glad you mentioned Marvin Blum because um, Marvin and I have been collaborating on this very topic for a long time now. We are, Kathy and I are his go-to people on family governance. And I actually, on his right. most recent article about the whole need for uh, family governance within families, um, he was showcasing what we do with uh, families. But he and I both agree that uh, the line is, if you want to succeed, you have to be having intentional family meetings. If you want to fail, yeah. don't. Uh, 
And a family meeting is not where you get together and talk about the money in the business. It's about getting to know the family members much better and in, in, in depth. Um, so we actually, he and I collaborated and created a trust structure that we call a FAST, which stands for Family yep. Advancement Sustainability Trust. But it's a trust designed to endow the family meeting process. And, um, and it gets typically would be warehoused at a place like Boston Private. And it would be um, administered for the benefit of continuing to run family meetings long into the future. Um, but getting families to sit down may seem uncomfortable. Uh, we are finding, though, that uh, it provides and, and having a third party come in and run a family meeting for a family totally changes the dynamic. Normally, yeah, the parents yeah. that we're talking to are thinking, oh, I'll get the family together at Thanksgiving for a couple hours after the dinner and I'll just tell them all whatever I'm going to tell them. Well, that's not necessarily the healthiest way to start because that's a parent telling experience, not a team learning experience. If a family brings and I will in share with you, I want to interrupt you for one second and share with you a horrific story. I had a family literally do that at Thanksgiving and it ended up with an in-law biting uh, off a chunk of the ear of one of the patriarchs. I kid you not. Uh, so uh, when you say that's not the way to go about this, I absolutely agree. Uh, and, uh, and I have uh, personal experience to, to back that up. <laughs> that's a great story. Well, you know, my favorite story about this is that I was doing a family office conference, just to give you an idea how important this is. And after I spoke, I was at lunch, a guy came up to me and said, wow, what you do is really important. We and our family spend time, money and effort on this every year. And he said, we have a family meetings and, and turns out he's one of the Rothschilds. And he lets me tell mm -hmm. the story. But he said, um, as an example of how important this has been, I'm starting a business with a couple of my fourth cousins. And I remember when he said that, I thought, what the heck is a fourth cousin? I mean, how far back do you have to go before mm -hmm. you can come forward again to get to a fourth cousin? Most families right. don't know a third cousin, let alone actually right. know a fourth cousin. He said, because of these family meetings, we get an opportunity to get to know each other. And it was through that that when I was starting a business, I naturally thought of my cousins to potentially help me out because I knew what they're doing and where they were. And, uh, and if nothing else, even if you didn't have a lot of money, wouldn't you want your family to hold together? So many families families say family's all important. It's the most important thing, but they don't do anything about it. And they don't spend any capital. There's no capital deployment in asset allocation towards building a family team. A family vacation is not the same thing. There's intentionality of a family meeting. And that's what we find is the world of difference. And advisors are starting to get, it, get that. And this is why I love working with Boston Private, because you guys get it. You have the breadth and the capabilities to bring the real, the real focus on the, all aspects of this. But being able to work with your team um, really helps out. Uh, and then when there are outside advisors, the whole advisor team usually gets invited, if not all, most of them get invited to the family meeting because the whole family gets to meet them. And it really creates yep. a much better dialogue of where are we going and how are we going to get there as a group? Yep. And I 100% agree there. I, I use another little uh, tidbit uh, frequently when working, working with families and, and you kind of hit on it. Uh, is that um, every single family I've ever worked with, uh, all approaching 30 years now of working with, um, uh, with wealthy families, um, they have a, a whole host of goals and objectives, and every family has different goals and objectives, but there's two that are common with every family that I've ever worked with. And that first one is 
that they don't want wealth to disrupt second and third generational family members from uh, pursuing their passions and from being uh, thoughtful uh, you know, citizens. Uh, that's the first thing. Uh, and then the second thing is, uh, I call it, it's the definition of family. They want everybody to come home for Thanksgiving. Uh, and uh, that, that kind of definition of family, uh, really what it means is they want the family to interact and be connected. Uh, and so much of uh, family governance and, and legacy planning is about connecting the family. And what you know, can start out as, uh, as you know, complicated and can start out as uncomfortable, the more you practice it, uh, the more second nature it becomes. And in every single family that I've worked with, um, I have found that those uh, that spend uh, more time and effort uh, and resources on uh, coming together uh, and practicing the, the governance uh, process, uh, the more successful they are at creating thoughtful stewards and passing wealth uh, and maintaining that wealth through generations. Well, I'm totally with you on that. And uh, I would say that the practice um, that we often envision is there are a number of activities we encourage a family to engage in, but ideally it's better coming from an outsider because then the family can mull it yes. over and yes. choose it, but then they own it. But family philanthropy yeah. or organizing the next Jennifer family meeting or, or organizing the next family vacation or coming up with our family history and how we're going to archive it and get it out to all family members. What's our family education process? There's a whole bunch of decision-making activities that we can encourage them uh, towards whatever they choose they own it and then it, it ends that ends up being the world of difference going forward fantastic well tom as always um this has been incredibly uh enlightening and helpful and we're we're very lucky to have uh, you as a resource and to be able to partner and collaborate with you um, i want to encourage all of our clients to reach out to your boston private wealth advisor to discuss your needs uh, regarding our conversations today. Providing guidance and support as your trusted advisor is our mission here uh, at Boston Private. You can also read our latest perspectives on wealth planning by visiting bostonprivate.com. And while you're there, you can subscribe to our newsletters if you'd like with all of this information delivered directly to your inbox. Thank you for tuning in. Thanks for joining me today. And Tom, as always, it's been my pleasure. And same back at you. Really enjoyed it. Thanks very much, Jason. This podcast is solely for informational purposes and is not a solicitation or an offer to buy any security or instrument or to participate in any trading strategy. The opinions expressed and information contained in this podcast are given in good faith, may be subject to change without notice, and are as of the date issued. All sourced information is believed to be reliable but has not been independently verified. This podcast discusses general market activity, industry or sector trends, and other broad-based economic, market, or political conditions and should not be construed as personalized investment advice. The following does not represent a complete analysis of every material fact with respect to the topics covered herein. All investments carry a risk of loss. Listeners should review any planned financial transactions or arrangements that may have tax, accounting, or legal implications with their advisors. 
For additional information about us, please refer to our Form ADV Disclosure Brochure, which may be obtained by calling us at 800-422-6172 or emailing at info at bostonprivate.com. Boston Private Bank and Trust Company has been merged into and is now Silicon Valley Bank. Banking, lending, and trust products or services under the name Boston Private are offered by Silicon Valley Bank, a California bank with trust powers. Silicon Valley Bank is a member of the FDIC and the Federal Reserve System and is an equal housing lender. Silicon Valley Bank is the California bank subsidiary of SVB Financial Group, NASDAQ, SIVB. SVB Wealth Advisory, member FINRA and SIPC, SEC Registered Investment Advisor,